Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is the No Words Bar podcast. This is a special uh, Father's Day episode. Um, started off saying uh, happy Father's Day to all the fathers that will be listening to this and um, and whoever's listening to it, their fathers also. Wishing y'all a happy Father's Day. Um, it's a beautiful Sunday Sunday afternoon. Beautiful weather outside. And um, normally... I would be joined by my good uh, esteemed co-host Chris, um, but um, he's taking a backseat to this one. And um, this special episode, having a, a very special guest on here. Um, uh, this person um, obviously is a very uh, special person uh, to me, and um, everybody pretty much knows him by many names. Um, you know, the, this guy that I have with me today, a uh, very influential person uh, to my life and just an overall good person overall to, to, to everybody that he that he meets. Um, just to want to give you a, a, a rundown of little accomplishments. Um, this guy that I have <laughs> interviewing today on the show, um, this guy was a uh, and, and he may be like, well, why are you going to give my accomplishments? A rundown, but heck, might as well. Uh, so this guy pretty much was a um, St. Francis Xavier uh, College U- University over in Antigonish, Nova Scotia. He is a uh, Hall of Fame inductee in 2006. Um, played five years over at his college basketball program. He is considered the godfather of the basketball program, the men's basketball program up there. Was the first, the first African-American player to play on the college men's college basketball team. Uh, he's a four-time AUAA All-Star, which is pretty much like a conference All-Star. Um, and he was the college's uh, the basketball program uh, MVP three times. Um, upon graduation, uh, he finished over there with um, – he was a leading scorer uh, for, for the, the basketball program with 2,299 points, I think. Right now, he's probably at maybe about eight or nine. But keep in mind, people, this was before the whole three-point stuff was popular. So, you know, that's the score that many points is no slouch. Goes by many names. Little Joe Hammond, Mr. Clutch. Friends call him OG, but to me, he's just simply my dad. So, welcome, Dad Podcast. Thank you for joining me today, man. It's a pleasure to be here, son. And I appreciate all of that accolade you gave me up front. Uh, A lot of it is well-deserved. A lot of it uh, was given to me by by my peers and, and guys who I grew up with playing, and I think I owe a lot to them uh, as much as uh, they owe it to me. Uh, I listen. They got to give credit where credit is due. You know, much appreciation to those guys. You know, um, to kind of get a little backstory on this. Um, a few years ago, um, I remember I was at my uh, my previous job, and I always listened to the New York uh, radio frequently. Um, online and it was ESPN New York and they had a contest over there um, pretty much was like what is your favorite moment with your father so I gave it a try I'm like ah, right, you know I might as well I didn't say that it was only limited to New York residents so and it was like um, on the Mike Lupica show and so I'm like nah, you know what let me just put it submit my thing in there and what I had submitted was uh, my experience seeing him in uh, um, his college's hall of fame and just the, the the overall reaction of the people that 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 saw him, people that still at that time, like thirty something years later, 
um, they 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 saw him and they, and, and they just automatically recognized him. It's it just it, it was just a uh, it, it was an out of body experience to, to witness that because um, you know me I was you know born after my father really was uh you know Hey Davis playing days. And so I never really got, you know, I never really got to see him play or anything like that. So to hear um, the stories that people had when they met, when they saw him there and, and their elation and excitement, it, it was just mind boggling to me. Um, so I had submitted that, uh, that as my, my, um, you know, my entry into the contest. And I think the contest was like, you got two tickets to any um, sporting event in New York. Um, it was like a gift card to Michael Jordan's Steakhouse. Uh, we was supposed to go to limo to the game and um, some gift cards for, for like mem- sports memorabilia and got uh, probably like about a couple of weeks after I submitted my, uh, my entry into there, um, got a email back from ESPN New York and pretty much told me, uh, you know, had won and we had to do a mad scramble. I remember it was a last second thing to try to get up there, but we eventually did. And um, what was cool about it was that we was able to go up to ESPN New York studios. And um, Mike Lupica was doing the show. He was doing the afternoon show at the time. And, um, you know, got there. We was just hanging out in, in, in the little lobby there, just listening to the, the show as it go on. And lo and behold, you know, we was able to get on to the radio uh, uh, to, to speak with Mike Lupica for like about five, ten minutes. And the fact that, you know, for both of us being from New York, you know, it's a mind boggling thing to think that we would be actually on New York sports radio at home hey, you, you never would have thought that would ever happen but apparently it did and it was a great experience and I, it, it kind of like sparked something in my mind like you know what if i ever do this podcast thing professionally or whatnot um like i i, I gotta do one i gotta do one with with, with my father because there, there's just a lot of stuff a lot of knowledge and uh that he knows and, and experiences within the game and just sports in general um throughout his life and and i feel like it is a proper thing to know and just just him his story in general um i feel like it's a proper thing for everybody to know and i and i and i know he would appreciate it so you know that that's why um you know had to get you on here and do this man to get get your get your story heard out here man well i appreciate it son well you know uh growing up in new york city myself and back in the early 70s uh i attended andrew jackson high school at that time and i guess from 1969 i was Moved out to, from Harlem to uh, Queens, New York, and uh, didn't have much interest at first in basketball. But uh, the year we moved out there, I think the thing that sparked me the most was my father, who was pretty much a baseball guy, and uh, they always talked about Jackie Robinson. And uh, the summer of '69, when we moved out there, he took a two by four, he took an orange hoop and a white net. And, and nailed it on the garage, the front of the garage. And I think that that's when it all started for me. Uh, but unfortunately, he never got to see the accolades that, that I accomplished on the basketball court. He uh, died at a very young age at 42 in 1972. But in 1972, I met a gentleman by the name of Tom Kinchowski. And uh, he was another person who uh, loved the ball player who uh, wore the number 42 by the name of Connie Hawkins who uh, I came enamored with myself uh, at that time. But uh, long story short, uh, uh, at that time, you know, I played a lot of playground basketball with a lot of guys from all over the city. 
uh, uh, mostly out in Queens, but uh, I also played in Manhattan, played in the Bronx, played in the Brooklyn. And in 1977, started playing in the summer pro leagues. At that time, uh, one of the first guys who kind of mentored and helped me uh, develop a game was a guy by the name of Charlie Yelvinson. Some people may remember him playing for Rice High School in the 60s with Dean Memminger. Jay called him Charlie Y. At that time, he was playing with the Portland Trailblazers. Uh, we moved forward a little further to the next year, and I played with another Fort Fordham guard by the name of Kenny Charles, who was playing with the Buffalo Braves at that time. So, you know, one, one of the, the beautiful things back then that uh, I think, you know, young guys today will never be able to, to, to get the pleasure of doing is being able to play on the same court with professional basketball players as a teenager and as a young man. And I think that that development helped me along the way as well. I mean, over the years, uh, I did wind up going and graduating from Christ the King in 1975. And I know everyone knows about Christ the King and the accolades and, and the championships that they've accomplished over the years. And so many players have come from there. But it was Tom that decided to, you know, uh, it'd be best for me to try to get a four-year scholarship somewhere and play basketball. And at that time, his brother Steve who also was from New York City, uh, wound up in Canada as an assistant coach to the Canadian national team. And at that time, the head coach was Jack Donahue, who was uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's coach. But uh, as we moved along further on in my career, uh, uh, basically, uh, you know, I, I, I kind of think that the beauty of my game came because I was playing the international game in Canada and I would come home in the summers and play in the summer pro leagues. You know, I played at, at West Forth. I had a few stints where I went up and played games at the Rucker, played, you know, on teams and, and with guys who would call me down to play at the Pro-Am or uh, a guy by the name of Stan Williams, who I've – Stan, that's just Stan Williams. Stan Wright, who uh, played at uh, Rhode Island, as a matter of fact, who was a, a high school uh, 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 teammate of mine as well uh, at Andrew Jackson. But uh, some of the guys who I grew up with at that time, went on themselves and had good careers in college. You know, playing in high school, uh, there were a number of NBA guys, future NBA guys that played too. Most notably was Vinnie Johnson, who was at FDR, and uh, Bill Willoughby, who was playing out of Inglewood High School. But, uh, you know, the, the beauty of basketball uh, is a sport that I think transcends around the world. And that's something that we see today with the international influx in the NBA at that time. Uh, and when I was playing up in Canada, we used to come down and play against teams in the United States, most notably Duke. We played against Richmond. We beat them. <laughs> I just had to throw that in there. <laughs> you know, we played Virginia Tech. We we played against James Madison. I mean, I, it was a slew of them. St. Joseph's we played against, Villanova, when they had Rory Sparrow, John Pannon. I mean, a, a, a lot of good experiences at that time. And and one of the experiences that I appreciated a whole lot was at the time, I think the summer of 77 and 78, uh, Bill Forster of Duke University at that time, before Coach K, uh, had saw me play against this team. And, and I kind of outplayed the 76 Olympian on that team by the name of Tate Armstrong, who got drafted by the Chicago Bulls. And he invited me as a counselor to his camp. <clears throat> Excuse me. And at that time, I had room with a brother out of Philadelphia, who was well-known uh, by the name of Michael Brooks. Michael Brooks, uh, at that time, was a sophomore at LaSalle University, 
and later went on to play with the Clippers and other teams at that time. But uh, uh, the camp itself w- was a who's who for coaches. And what I mean by that, at, at that time, the coaches who, who attended the uh, the camp itself was was Pete Carrill, who was at Princeton at the time, C.M. Newton of Alabama, uh, uh, Al Labalbo uh, of Fairleigh Dickinson. I'm, I'm putting some old names out there, guys that they may not even know or remember these names. Uh, George Raveling from Washington State, and of course, the great late Jim Valvano of Iona, <laughs> was <laughs> a character. V. Yeah, Jimmy V was a character, man. So, you know, I, I've had some great experiences along the way, and and I continued to play ball uh, pretty much 11 years after coming down from Canada in 1980. I still played in the summer pro leagues. I played from 77 to 91, and over that time played with a slew of uh, guys who later themselves went on to play in the NBA, but the experiences and, and, and the relationships and the friendships that, 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 that came along the way is something I carry with me today and I'll never forget. You know, um, to backtrack a little bit on there um, and we will, and I'm, and, and we'll get in dive deep into, you know, everything as far as, you know, what you did at Christ the King and St. FX and, and, and with the, the semi-pro leagues. Um, but since it is also, you know, since it is, we are celebrating Father's Day. Um, I, I kind of want to um, touch on, you know, kind of, you know, your upbringing and childhood, and especially um, um, with Grandpa. Um, you know, it was what was what would you say was your most fondest memories that you had of him when, when you know, while, when he was alive? That's Joe, he's wishing you happy Father's Day. Excuse uh, my mother in the background. <laughs> One of the most uh, 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 things was 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 always about family with him. First of all, he was from Charleston, South Carolina. He was a Southern guy, but he had he he had that New York hustle to him as well. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, he was always a sharp dresser. You know, what I mean, always uh, treated everyone right. His nickname was Bubba, and anybody who knows in the South, Bubba, he was Bubba Green. That was his name. You know, a lot of people probably didn't know his first name being Lewis. But uh, the thing that he he strived was morals and values into our family that that still sticks with me today. You know, uh, his favorite saying was charity begins at home, then spreads abroad. And what what that particularly means is that you make sure you take care of your family above all and and, and make sure that they're they're always in a position to succeed. And uh, that's something I try to do. And it's still not only in in you and my my sons and, and daughters, but also in my nieces and nephews, you know what I'm saying? Uh, you know, do unto those as you would have them do unto you. And last but not least, he would always say, time waits for no one. And, and a lot of people don't don't understand what that means. You know, lost time can never be recouped. You know, when you, you're raising kids and, and not spending time with them, quality time when you think you are, you know, whether it be a birthday, whether it be a graduation, whether it just be a, going to the park on the weekend with them. You know, those are things that, that are really, you know, you got to treasure that because it's not something you'll be able to recoup later on in, in, in growing up and, and raising your children. You know, it's a, it's funny you mention it. And, um, you know, especially with everything that has been going on, you know, last year specifically with the whole COVID and stuff. Um, and it's, it's definitely had increased that emphasis on, on time and, and 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 using that time to you know be around the people that 
that you enjoy and, and love being around with and just, you know, doing things that you just enjoy in life, just period. And you're right. Yeah. <laughs> time, time, time waits for, for no one. And it's, and it's kind of fitting that, as you know, like I just got a tattoo recently and that's the quote that I'm actually putting on, on, on there. You know, it's just, it's just it's yeah. funny how that all ties up together. Um, but definitely, definitely time, time is a precious commodity and it's something that you really cannot replace at all. Um, at no matter what age and, Sometimes it's it's very easy to get caught up into the the, the little things in, in, in life and you lose track of time. And so many, you know, we were just talking about it earlier, you know, how quickly this year is just um, just blazing through. And, you know, next thing you know, blink of an eye, you know, you're, you're back in the fall and the last, you know, third of the year. And it's just like, well, where did that time? Where did all the time go? I you know, don't, you don't you don't really think about it at, at the moment, but then you just you know, stop and think about it. And you're like, Oh shoot. Like, wow. But in the moment, not only just, you know, this year itself, think about this. We're in the year 2021. I remember everything when Y2K was coming about, we were moving out of the 1999 into the 2000s. Right. And everyone was worrying about computers crashing. What are we going to do? We're moving forward into the future. And, and, and in essence, time has kind of stood still in a lot of things. You know, we, we've advanced in a lot of stuff, but we're still struggling and, and, and stagnant in a lot of things that we should have been moving forward in. Right. Right. And, 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 and that's one of the things I know you always, you know, you always preach to me ever since I was a kid, you know, um, you know, to don't, you can't be stagnant. You got to live in the moment. Try right. Not to live in the moment. Right. Right. As much as you, as much as it's, and it's hard, it's very yeah. hard to not do that because you want to absorb it and, and, and cherish it and relish it. But you know, you just can't, Unfortunately, don't do it too long now. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> you know, it, it's um, but I mean, but that's just life in general, though. Um, and it, like I, I know the relationship. I know that we have. You know, anybody that knows me, you know, knows I speak a lot about you and stuff like that. Um, uh, what what would you say? How is the relationship between you, you and your father? Y'all, oh. y'all really close. So you know, it was one of, one of those type of things. Like, like I like if you could. We got to remember, I was the youngest son, not the youngest child. But uh, at an early age, I had open heart surgery. And I think that kind of brought us both together uh, a lot closer as well. Because, you know, back in the 60s, to have that type of surgery, especially for a young black kid, wasn't something that was done on a regular basis. And it was a difficult decision for him. You know, he he went through his, his uncle who had raised him, more or less, down in Charleston to get advice on what to do. And, and whether or not to proceed with it. And one of the things that I'm kind of grateful for today is that my father was a city worker and him not being a city worker, he would not have had the coverage to have that operation be performed on me. And I think after that operation, wherever he went, I went. <laughs> wherever he traveled out to the stores or, or shopping or to, to see, see his, his brothers and his cousins and them throughout New York City, you know, whether it was down in Charleston, where I spent a couple of summers, you know, he always made sure to have me close to him and made sure I was looking out. Uh, you know, he, he was always looking out for my best interest, basically, is what it was. But at the same time, teaching me along the way how to be a young man and, and, and the proper way to treat people, respect people as well as respect yourself. And like I said, always treat everyone as you want to be treated. 
And, and that's that, like I said, that still sticks with me today. And that's something I try to instill in you, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and for people out there, listen, I couldn't be more proud of Maurice and his accomplishments as well. You know, it, it, he says everyone talks about him, but when people meet him, they tell me the same thing. You know, you really raised a real fine son, you know, a guy who respects everyone. He's knowledgeable. He's got a little street hustle still from New York City, but That's he's a very even. smart kid. <laughs> and he's right. always been that way. Always been an honest student, always struck, been on the straight and narrow, you know, and, and, and that's something that's, that's very difficult to do for young black men today. You always want them to succeed. Definitely, definitely. But, you know, it, it's and a lot of reasons why, you know, I, I wind up being that type of person. Now, man is, you know, it just the freedoms like it, it's the the freedoms that you and even mom had um given me and you guys always trusted in my decisions whatever they may be and and I know they may not they may not have been the best decisions it may be decisions that you may have questioned um and, and that's fair um but at no point did I ever feel that you know um the decisions that I made you know you you respected it and you know you always allowed me to just find my way like I, I'm pretty sure it's you know it's hard not to you know you know, I guess have so much control, you know, I, I guess over your children, but um, you was able to find a, a, a perfect medium where you was able to be, you know, you was more of a disciplinarian, and, but at the same time, you know, allowed me to just be myself and just be me. And, and, and I can't, like, I, I'm very thankful for that every single day. Um, and, and speaking of, you know, the things as far as, you know, being a father, like, what what would you say like being a father like how how what does being a father mean to you and how has it made you a better person in your life wow that's a good question you know it's, it's really not something i thought about because because it comes so natural to me you know i, I at a young age I, I had nephews of mine that i helped raise as well and you know that's that's something today which i'm kind of proud of because you know i have six nephews and they all think of me as their second dad, you know, they all call me uncle B. There's only one uncle B in the family (laughs) that name mentions everybody kind of, you know, stand up straight and narrow, you know, uncle B is coming, make sure you're doing right. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, it's just something that, you know, my, my mother came from a very large family where she, uh, had eight brothers and, you know, they talk about how it takes a village to raise a child. And, and I think that that was the, the thing that that came across with me the most, seeing how my uncles raised their sons. And and that was something that, you know, I try to do as well as with my nephews, as well as yourself. You know what I mean? But it, it, it's, 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 not a, it's not a hard job. <laughs> it's 24-7 in lifetime. It's, if you see it that way and, and you go about it that way, it makes it a lot easier. Yeah, I, I can imagine. I mean, granted, I'm not a father, you know, yet or anything like that. So, I mean, it's it's one thing hearing, hearing that. And, and I have many friends that are, you know, they're, they're fathers now and, and they're, they're all great fathers. And, and it's also great for me, you know, not only for, for everything that you do as a father um, and, and how much it means to me, all the stuff you've taught me over the years and, and stuff that I've been able to, to witness. Um, it's also great to be, in a, a, a close tight knit circle of friends that, you know, the ones that, that, that are fathers, um, 
you know, it, I, I take, I learned something from them too. And for me, like I said, on the outside looking in, um, it, it's, it, I look at, in my opinion, a father is part, part of the special fraternity. Exactly. Um, yeah. You know, yeah. It, it's, it's one of those things that the experience I can imagine it, it's second to none, um, regardless of how many times, how many kids you have, like, <laughs> you know, whether it's the first, you're the first one you had or, or, or you know, the, or the last one, I, I can imagine the, the the amount of joy and happiness that comes along with it and, and and just seeing the progress of that of that child along along the lines as they get older i would imagine it's a very fulfilling sight and feeling yeah there's nothing important more important than the maturation of a, of a child but there's nothing more important i think than a father-son relationship you know they always talk about daddy's little girl but it's not the same not at all i it's kind of hard to put into words but 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 it brings a smile and a joy and, and, and a warmth to your heart when you see your son succeed and see how he's matured. Like you say, from from a little kid who plays around at the beach in the sand to 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 someone who you want to emulate yourself, whether, you know, it's in sports, whether it's in academics, whether it's in entertainment, whatever it may do to see him succeed and be successful in that and know you had a hand. And, and, and a part of that, it, it's nothing more enjoyable than that to me. I mean, I, like you talked about with all my accomplishments that I've done on the basketball court. I mean, hit, hitting a 60 foot shot in, in, in the final four up in Canada in 1975, 1975, rather, excuse me, was one of the most enjoyable shots in times of my life. But seeing you being born probably topped that and seeing you today into the young man that you've become is it, it's priceless. It really is. Oh, well, well, that, that's, that's heavy. <laughs> that's heavy. And you know, the one thing I also appreciated about you that, you know, and we'll, and it's going to kind of tie into the next thing I want to talk about. But, um, you know, as a kid, you know, you never was one to pressure me into doing anything sports wise or anything like that, or at least I never felt pressured, you know, whether it is, you know, basketball or, or, or baseball, or even hockey also at the same time. Um, you know, I, I'm very thankful that you never was one of those type of fathers that like, Oh, you have to do something to kind of carry on my legacy. Exactly. So to speak. And, you know, I, I mean, <laughs> friends of me that have played basketball with me, they know I, I listen, even I admit, I'm not a good player. I'm, I just never developed. I just never was blessed with the talent and skills and to play basketball like that and, and translate it onto something, you know, worthwhile or into a professional level. Um, and not, and not to say that you didn't try. I, I remember so many times that tried you know, everything you, you tried, we, right. We, we, we tried bitty basketball. We tried baseball. We tried yeah. karate <laughs> Right. on right. and on. Exactly. But the one thing that I saw in you was the fact that, that you had, that that academic intelligence and and that was something i think that stuck with you and it was easy because it wasn't something that i taught you it came to you naturally and that's why i decided you know to kind of back off with the sports and, and made sure that you you know you you, you went to school you, you did good in school and you did well and, and accomplished things in that re- regard right right you know and then and then like i said like and then now you know going back to if we can back to when you was a kid you know and, and doing it within the realm of sports now um you know what what was your 
do you remember what was your first memory of of, of just watching sports in general and, and like what what appealed to you like whatever which whatever what sport appealed to you at first because i know basketball will always be a love but it, you know that doesn't always necessarily mean that that was your first love in sports as a kid Pro- probably baseball and, and and i go back to the baseball thing again uh although football was there too because i played pop one believe it or not in central park as a little kid and that was you know five six seven prior to my open heart surgery and once i had the surgery they told me it wouldn't be uh, safe for me to be out there getting hit in my chest. So baseball became, you know, my love. I loved the Yankees at that time. And at that time, it was <laughs> it was when the Yankees weren't too successful. But my favorite player on the Yankees was Horace Clark, who was from St. Croix. He was a second baseman, probably because he was the only person of color on the field at that time. Right. And, uh, you know, growing up in Harlem, uh, I used to play bitty basketball at Brent Franklin High School and, and in the summer camps. They used to take us out to Yankee Stadium to the bleachers and we used to have the box lunch at that time. You know, you had the sandwich with the cookie, with the little uh, uh, box of milk and that type of thing. You know, so each kid would, would get would get his little box lunch and we'd spend the day out there in the bleachers all day long. You know, and that's something we did every weekend. So baseball was the sport. Uh, uh, I didn't get into basketball until, you know, like I said, till junior high school. But I used to have a cousin of mine who used to play at the Rucker by the name of Mike Saunders. They used to call him Bones. And he grew up uh, with his childhood friend, which was Ed Searcy, who wound up going in. Uh, Ed Searcy had played with Len Elmore at Powell Memorial and then went on later to play at St. John's and had a little stint in uh, the NBA. And uh, I had became real good friends with Ed Searcy. Real good player. Real good player. Now, now what was it? Now, as much as I know, we we are, I always joke on you about the Knicks and stuff like that. But and, and, <laughs> like, it, 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 what was it about? What was it about basketball when the first time you you was watching basketball? And obviously the Knicks. But um, what was it about it that you felt that when you was watching it, and I guess eventually when you got into junior high school, that you're like, you know what, you know, like a, it was almost like a light bulb moment. Like, you know what, I wonder if like. I think I could be pretty good with this and, and, and actually utilize this and, and do something of great importance with it. Like what, like what about basketball that made you feel like, you know what? I think I could actually do this. Well, it came very easily. I mean, no one really taught me the game, <laughs> believe it or not. I, you know, as I look back, you know, my brother always tried to take credit for teaching me the game of basketball. All he did was pass it to me in the driveway and I used to take jump shots. <laughs> but, uh, the game came real easy to me. You know, I, I, I just guess I, I was a very athletic kid at that time. And, you know, I always tried to overachieve because I was always told because of, you know, my surgery that I would never be able to play sports and, and never be able to accomplish things. And I was I was always an overachiever. And then uh, becoming a Knicks fan, of course, at that time, 1969, my favorite player was Walt Frazier. You know, I looked at the way he played, how smooth he was how effortlessly he was. It always looked like Clyde was out there never sweating. And then off the court, the way he handled himself as a professional, you know what I mean? Never got in trouble. Always seemed to be doing the right thing off the court as well as on the court. So that 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 kind of was, was the, the turning point for me. Uh, but, I mean, that makes sense. I mean, like I, mean, <laughs> like I said, you know, um, you know it, it, everybody knows that you know, that you're a diehard Knicks fan and stuff like that. But, you know, it's always intriguing to find out, like, the origin story of, of how you became um, a, a fan 
you know, of a certain team. I know on my last podcast that I did with Chris, um, I had had a little soliloquy or, 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 you know, a little history lesson on, you know, my fandom being an Islanders fan and, right. and, and, you know, just all the hardships and struggles and of dealing with that as a kid, you know, being born so many years after at the, their, their peak and, you know, obviously not at their greatest times, you know, had little moments here and there. And just, you know, just now with the recent success of that organization the team and just how great it feels to actually see something, a winning product consistently. So, you know, luckily for you, I mean, yeah, I had my bull and of course the Bulls fan and I had the Jordan years. I was yeah. fortunate, you know, to be a Bulls fan at the right time. And I think, and I thank Aunt Debbie for that too. Um, much I know much to your this disagreement. I'm pretty sure at the beginning, right? Uh, uh, yeah, but, <laughs> but uh, you know, it, it, I know I've had had those and being a Yankees fan and seeing the championships I have seen, and, and but I I can imagine how for you, you know, seeing I guess the last two Knicks championships. Well, not only know. just just the Knicks itself, but you know, I think you know the the, the heart back on that. You know, you asked, you know, you know where it came from. You know, growing up as well, uh, Dr. J at that time was a great player. And, and also, don't forget who I mentioned, Connie Hawkins. I used to see footage of them, you know what I mean? I, I saw Dr. J play, but I didn't really see Connie Hawkins play because he was a little before my time. Mm-hmm. But I had heard so much of him, like I said, and saw footage of him. And I always tried to, to, to have that finger roll. And, 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 and as a New York City ball player, especially then and still now, we're always known for going to the basket you know, slicing through traffic with getting the oohs and the ahs, you know, and that's that's where I got to, to where the number 42 from as well. Like I said, you know, street ball and playground and asphalt ball was was the blacktop was it back then. I mean, that that, that that's where you wanted to be. I, I used to be out there all day long playing, go home, get some lunch. We'd go back again and play, <laughs> go for dinner, go play under the lights. Like I said, you know, that that's what it was about at that time, you know, because – there was nothing else out there for us. It wasn't like we were going to play soccer. It wasn't like we were going right. to play baseball. Right. We sure as heck wasn't going to be playing hockey. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's funny you mentioned hockey with yourself because, you know, I kind of incorporated that when I came home and being up in Canada and seeing how that game was played. And that was one of the reasons why I named you after a hockey player, a famous hockey player as well. That's you know, right. Who had played for the Montreal Canadiens, Maurice Richard, the Rocket. Yep. I just, I just felt that name was nice. I really liked the name. Yeah, I mean, it, it's <laughs> and then it's very fitting. And then, you know, and, and then meeting mom, and then mom being a an Islanders fan, a hockey fan herself. <laughs> so it sure. almost was like it's the perfect storm. Yep. You know, it's just, it just all clicked and it just all worked yeah. out together yeah. in yeah. the end. Oh, <laughs> but I. But what I wanted to do is that I, I wanted to also touch on, you know, you had mentioned before with Christ the King and uh, and then the person that was very, you know, helpful with you at that time, um, Tom Kanchalski. Um, and he had recently uh, passed away uh, a, a couple of months ago. And um, he was just he was up actually for the um, nominated for the Hall of Fame uh Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame. Um he didn't make it, um, but um we believe that he will at some point. But um if you can like can you like g- give a little <laughs> bit of a you know history uh between you two because I know you always you know 
called him a father figure. Yeah, awesome well, himself. How I met Tom uh, was uh, I was playing CYO basketball in Rosedale back in the early 70s, I think from like 70, 71, 72. And a gentleman by the name of Mike Flatley was uh, coaching me at that time. And he had introduced uh, me to Tom is how that happened, basically. You know, because back then, you know, I played on a team, by the way, where I was the only brother. I played with four all-city Whitecats uh, by the name of Whitey Rigsby, who played at Villanova for Archbishop Malloy. And his backcourt partner was uh, Billy Clark at Archbishop Malloy, who went to play at St. John's. And then they had a third player by the name of Bob Mishevitz, who was at Holy Cross, who played for Providence, as well as a guy from Holy Cross named Ed Turney, who played at uh, Providence with him. So, and we uh, we won one championship one year uh, against Gate of Heaven, as a matter of fact. And Tom saw me playing the CYO leagues and how I excelled, and and that's that's how our friendship had came about at that time, back in '72. But uh, it seemed like wherever I went. Whatever tournament I was playing, whether it was in Montebello Park, in the Courtsman, or wherever, Tom was always there. And as you well back know, know back then, there was they, they talk about Tom never having a phone and and never having a typewriter and those things. But imagine in the seventies, they really only thing only way you can contact someone was going to a payphone and putting a dime in it. <laughs> <laughs> but there was no connection coming from one person to the next. But it always was, I guess, was by word of mouth. He always knew where I was playing. And always made sure I was in a tournament where people could see me and I could be seen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's. Um, I know for me, you know, I, I didn't meet Tom until well, you know, well off, and you know, the, the, way after. Obviously, I was born. Um, but right. I, I, the couple of times that I have met him, um, you know, the common thing everybody always said about Tom, and I wound up finding out myself, and you know where I'm going with this, is that he just always. The, he, first of all, he was the nicest man that you could ever meet. The most kindest and and, and, and just he just he was a gentle giant because he was tall. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and it just was a gentle giant. But the one thing everybody always remembered about him was that firm hand, handshake. He yeah. looked you right dead in the eye and that firm handshake. Yeah. And it was just something about that. Like it, 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 it's hard to put into words, but it's like you just you knew like all right, I'm gonna pay attention to whatever this guy is saying. And yeah. It, but, but, but getting, I didn't mean to cut you off, but getting back to Christ the King, it's funny that you mentioned that because Tom uh, went to Archbishop Malloy, as you well know, as well as his brother Steve, who I played for. But uh, he had also had known some people at Christ the King, and, and one person in particular was the athletic director at that time, Father John Savage, who uh, w- w- was really a great man to me and accepted me, although I only played at Christ the King, remember, one year. Mm-hmm. I wound up being a fifth-year senior. And at that time, uh, there weren't any fifth-year seniors playing varsity basketball. And the reason why I say that is my birthday is in October. So I was turning 18 when school started. And and, and they don't let you play varsity basketball being a fifth-year student at 18. So uh, Tom somehow went to the bishops, uh, the dios, and worked his magic like he always does, him and Father Savage. And the next thing you know, they allowed me to play. You know, it's almost similar to how – they have the transfer portal today where at one time when you transferred from one school to the next, especially because I was playing in the PSAL school, I was I was I was going to Andrew Jackson and then going to Christ the King, which was a Catholic school, a parochial school. So, you know, that 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 right there told me how much he meant uh, to me a, 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 as a person and as a, as a man who was looking out for my best interest. 
Yeah. And you could see, and that was the thing about him. Like you could, like he could, you could always, when you just by, by hearing him talk and just listening to him and, you know, even through all the stories that he had different players that he has met, you know, that he had met in his lifetime. Um, you can always tell that he always had you, like your best interest. He always looked out. Where was it for your best interest? Um, you know, I guess so many times, you know, you got people like that and that, that type of stature, you know, it's almost like they, they be, yeah, they may be like an opposing figure, but they kind of almost try to force their ideologies onto you or, or, you know, try to try to change stuff up about you. Um, but him is like he just had this innate ability to just allow you to be you. But at the same time, it's like he he always would not hesitate to let you know, like, hey, you know, you're very good, you know, or this is what you made the improvement on. But it was just everything was just all it helped you out. I, it just helped you out. And even just from the stories, just other people that have known him from all of the years like that, it just seems to be a common thread. And, 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 and you saying that, like, it only it, like, it, it just only makes it, you know, it's kind of like it furthermore validates it, you know, in the end. Um, but to speak about Christ the King, um, uh, that one year that you played with them, was there any memorable games or a specific game that you could recall that? that you was very fond of or sticks in your mind? Oh, oh, without a doubt, you know, because at that time, Archbishop Malloy was still the power in, the, in, in, in Catholic schools at that time throughout the city, as well as power memorial. But uh, we uh, had four guys who had came up from the freshman team to the JV team and then on varsity. And I was kind of like the missing link. And then we were hoping we would, this was going to be the year that, that Christ the King won the championship. Because we had never really advanced at that time, you know, um, it was always Malloy or Holy Cross or St. Francis Prep. But uh, we had a game at that time. We only played maybe two or three conference games prior to Christmas, and at that time we were two and zero, and Archbishop Malloy was three and zero, and we had a game. I think it was maybe the week before Christmas, nineteen seventy five. And uh, Archbishop Malloy came to play at our court and they had a player by the name of Kenny Wallace and Kenny Wallace was leading the league in scoring, averaging 32 a game. And uh, they put me on him, you know, because they always thought of me as being a defensive specialist. But lo and behold, by the time the game ended and the final buzzer went off, I held Kenny uh, to zero points. (laughs) Next thing you know, Bill Travers was putting me in, in the Daily News, had a nice write-up about us as well as myself, and that kind of solidified me on the team, you know, along with my – for my players as well, you know what I mean? It wasn't one of them things where they lifted me up on their shoulders, but they <laughs> accepted me a, a, as one of them. Right, right. Um, And, and you know, and that's – and it's, and I know, like, I, even as a kid, like, you took me to a lot of um, Christ the King games. Um, I remember um, – very, I remember Lamar Odom, seeing Lamar Odom play specifically. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Before I think he had transferred over to, I forgot which other school he had wound up transferring. Well, he had went to a life. prep school, I think, after Christ yeah. came. Yeah. yeah. Up in Connecticut, maybe. Yeah. Right, right, right. And, and I mean, he was a beast then. And I mean, it's kind of amazing. You know, it's, it's amazing for me to, to know that like, man, I was, I was watching this guy play, you know, high school basketball, like as a kid. And then, you know, then and seeing what he wound up becoming, um, being the champion and, and stuff like that with the Lakers, like it's 
it's amazing. But at the same time, you're like, yeah, you know, like I remember seeing this guy. Like I, it, it feel feel kind of good. I don't know. It's just you just always felt good watching these guys, you know, mature from you know playing at that level and then getting to the point and then become NBA champions. Uh, that's it. That's a great. It's a nice. It's a nice feeling to, to know that I that I saw that from the beginning. Um, now as far as you know, so let's so after you know you you graduate from Christ the King. Like what? What do you remember much of that whole process between Christ, Christ the King, and then um, Saint of X? Like, how did that whole, um, how did that happen? Getting to Saint of X. Well, uh, Tom again it goes back to Tom Kachowski. You know, I mean, at, at that particular time, you know, uh, throughout most of the summer, myself and Tom, you know, I always wanted to attend Saint John's University, and unfortunately, as I told you, I wasn't wasn't a, always an A plus student. And that, mm. and that in itself kind of hurt me because I had had some offers, believe it or not, to play in the ACC at Wake Forest. And for the fact that when they got my transcript, my grades weren't where it should be, they decided to go elsewhere. And I believe the following year in 1976, they decided to uh, take a guy by the name of Frankie Johnson. And we know how he his career wound up. So, but I had no regrets about that. You know, uh, I was, you know, wasn't able to get into St. John's and even tried to get into St. Francis in Brooklyn. And like I said, at that time, Tom told me his brother was a head coach at a university up in Canada. You know, I was kind of leery, you know, I'd never traveled that far. I've been out the country like that. But uh, like I said, Tom assured me that it would probably be the best move for me uh, uh, academically, as well as for basketball itself, where I could make a name for myself. And um, that was one of the things that, uh, you know, we talked about over the summer and it's kind of funny that you mentioned that because my brother at that time was going through a little bit of a transition moving from one place to the next. And I was living with my brother in the summertime. So Tom had uh, offered me to uh, come and stay at his home with his, with his, with his mom, mm-hmm. who he was living with at that time. This is the house that him and Steve grew up in. And, yeah. um, him and Steve grew up in. So I, that's what I did for a week. I wound up staying there at their home and uh, his mom and uh, excuse my, my dog barking in the background there. Like he's <laughs> very, yeah, his, very his mom and his, his, his aunt uh, had welcomed me into their home and I wound up staying there for a week. And uh, I don't think, Many people that, you know, a lot of guys, Tom has helped a lot of people along the way, a lot of guys along the way. But I, I, I kind of felt then that, you know, I was like his adopted son. You yeah. know, that's the way he made me feel. You know, he uh, was gone for a few days up at Five Star. But when he did come back later in the week, he had uh, told me that uh, the story about his uncle, how his uncle used to be a linesman and worked at Forest Hills Tennis Club. And uh, that particular weekend, Tom was working himself. No. So he says, Gil, you know, I know you're here at the house and, you know, there's not much to do. You know what I mean? So why don't you, uh, I got a couple of tickets. I'll get you in and you can come watch a couple of tennis matches. Mind you, I had never been to Forest Hills Tennis Club, no less see a tennis match before. Right. But uh, I took him up on it and, and it was a great weekend. You know, I was there in the stands watching Bjorn Bork, Ily Nastasi and Connors and them guys play. <laughs> it was crazy. Yeah, watching these guys play in the crowd, the way they reacted to the way these guys played, you know, and I'm here, you know, I had a free pass to the concession stand. I'm getting free food. And, and, and the crazy <laughs> thing about it, you know, uh, 
Tom was working, but I didn't really see him, even though he was there working and he was such a large figure, he fits right in. So I really wasn't even out there looking at him or looking for him when those guys was playing right? because of the excitement on the court itself. But uh, that, that, that was the start right there. You know, like I said, for him and, and actually inviting me to live in his home, you know, I got to sleep in his bed one night. <laughs> I got to sleep in Steve's bed one night, his <laughs> brother, you know what I mean? And I think that kind of showed me just what we're talking about with Father's Day today. And what I mean by that, it showed what his father instilled in him and how to treat other people. You know, here it is. I'm this kid that that he didn't really know that well. I mean, although it was two or three years that on and off we met and, and, and knew each other. But, you know, Tom always took people under his wing. But I don't think he ever took anyone that early in his career as far as being a, a, a talent scout, as, as everyone kind of calls him. Mm-hmm. you know, and, and treating them that way. I think he saw something special in me. And, uh, you know, especially for the fact, like I said, I didn't have a father at that time. So that's what he wanted to be to me and for me. And that's what he was. Now, I know you had mentioned, you know, with, 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 uh, with Steve, um, you know, him, you know, being from New York and then obviously, you know, going up in Canada, like when was like, how was that whole recruitment process for them to get you, to there like could you shed some light on that really wasn't a recruitment you know that's the whole thing you know you you think of recruitment today where a guy comes to the house sits down with your parents you know tells them the ins and outs of the university you know tells the kid how much playing time he's going to get and and what what he can do for the for the program itself and what type of program it is and you got to remember when 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 steve coach k of canada took yeah. over the, the year before he started, the team had won only one game. I'll repeat <laughs> that, had won only one college game. You know, and he was a 30-year-old guy at that time himself. He had just went to law school. But he had won a championship and was MVP up in Canada for KD University back in, in the mid-60s. So, uh, you know, we talked over the phone first, and he told me he was going to be coming to New York to visit. And uh, basically, it wasn't a recruitment. We we met one day, and two days later, he was gone back up to Canada and, and, and wanted to know what my answer would be. So it wasn't like I had a lot of time to think about it. Mm. And uh, we had met uh, in the uh, playground behind Archbishop Malloy at that time. And uh, we had a one-on-one game. So he says, Gil, if you beat me, I guess I'll have to be, come bring you up to play for St. of X. And lo and behold, you know, I did beat him. I, not that he let me beat him, but he wasn't playing hard anyway. It was one of them 90 degree summer days in the 70s, if you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. So we were just out there and we, we sat on the bench and we talked and he explained and told me about his experience up there and, and how it helped him become a better person and a better young man. And, and you know, the two things that he promised me was, you know, it, it, you're going to get a, a, a solid education. I can promise after you come up there that you're going to go away with a degree and uh, hopefully a championship on the basketball court. I mean, and, and that's pretty much what any student athlete can ask for, you know, to be, be able to come right. and get on that stage, get that degree and, and walk away with the chip. And unfortunately, you know, think about this. In the four year period, we went from a team that had won only one game in one, in one year before we got there to we were 20 game winners. And one game away from the national championship, 
We were in the final four in 1979 in Canada. I had hit a 60-foot shot in the semifinal to tie the game. But if back then we had three-pointers, I would have been able to do what Kevin Durant wasn't able to do for the Nets last night. (laughs) (laughs) I would have won the game on a 60-foot Jerry West shot. You know, after that particular shot, as well as some others I had taken to win games, I kind of got the nickname up in Canada, Mr. Clutch, you know, because of Jerry West himself. He always seemed to be in the right time and the right place to hit those shots. It was very similar to the shot he hit against my Knicks. Yeah. You see? <laughs> yeah, but 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 that that was probably the most memorable. We, we were that, that close, man. I mean, uh, it seems like yesterday when I talk about it. But uh, same kind of situation happened when I was at Christ the King. It's funny that you mentioned that. We uh, played for the Brooklyn Queens Diocesan Championship at Bishop Ford. And uh, we played against Bishop Lachlan. During that season, I think the coach was Pat Quigley at that time. And their top player was Lester George, who later on played at Iona. We became real good friends uh, because we both worked on Wall Street after college. And um, we uh, did not have a bus that brought us to the game, believe it or not. Back then, it was like every man for himself getting to the game with your parents. Long story short, myself and two other starters uh, was traveling with one of the players' mother, and she didn't know directions to Bishop Ford. We uh-huh. finally did get there, but uh, it was maybe 20 minutes after the start of the game. They almost forfeited the game waiting for us. So when we did get there, they had us rush into the locker room and put our clothes on and everything. We come out, and we're told we're not starting. Now, they put three guys in our place to start who were uh, – uh, it's no disrespect to them, but they weren't half the players that we were. They were guys – who rarely played. Mm-hmm. Bishop Lachlan, we had beat them twice that year. Uh, and we were ready to, 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 to win the Brooklyn Queens Diocesan Championship. But lo and behold, we had an athletic director that sat us down. And uh, by halftime, we were down 18. We all three started the second half. We lost by one point. We tried to come back. and It just wasn't enough to overcome their lead. And uh, Bishop Lachlan went on that year to be Power Memorial for the city. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So that so close, man, in, in both regards, in high school and in college, almost getting there. But like I said, I have no regrets. Not at all. And that's and, and, and that's good. Like, you know, I, I would think that some people, you know, they hold, you know, that I don't want to say like a grudge, but, um, you know, they, they, they kind of hold that in. And, and, and it's like they have, you know, should have, could have, would have moments, you know, and. Yeah. and you know, it's stuff like that that I feel so many, you know, I guess so many people, you know, parents or fathers, you know, mothers, whatever, you know, it's like what I was talking about earlier about, you know, having to try to carry on a legacy. Yeah. You know, it's almost like, all right, I need my child to be able to accomplish. I want them to accomplish, you know, what I didn't do, but I want them, you know, it's almost like I want them to do it the way that I that I would have done it, though, instead of, you know, kind of like forcing them to do that, even though the child may be like, you know, maybe I don't like. I don't really want to do this, but you know, if my parents, my father, and mother's telling me to do it. Then you know, I'm gonna do it. Cause, you know, you're a kid. You know, you're gonna do what your parents ask for you to do, or you know, in that in that way. So well, I, I think I think the thing that, that that taught me is that the best team doesn't always win. <laughs> unfortunately, that's right. You know, there's there's gonna be times when we we, we were definitely the class of the division uh, coming up uh, that year at like Christ the King, and we were the class of the conference. 
up in Canada because uh, the team that wound up winning it that year was St. Mary's University. And that was a team that we used to battle a, a few times. We kind of split during the season, but we, we, we had the better team. We definitely had the better team without a doubt. Now, fast forward to, and I know you had mentioned, you know, about, you know, your time over at St. of X. Um, I, you know, I, one thing I never asked you and I, now when I think about it, like how was that transition coming from New York all the way to Nova Scotia? Because I, because I know when I had went up there for your hall of fame thing, like <laughs> there is nothing, but it's cold. There's nothing but mountains, at least in the, in Antigonition, you know, in that area, you know, I'm pretty sure it's different over, you know, in Halifax, but to that that transition from being in, in in New York, big city, hustle and bustle, and all that stuff, and then going up there in this small little town, where I, you know, I, from correct me if I'm wrong, it's almost like it's a, you know, it, it's it's a small community. Like it really is like a few hundred people, or maybe a thousand. I don't know what the population over there in Antigonish, yeah. but it's a very small place, and it's like far away from any other like city major city or anything like that so like how is how are you able and, to deal and that with was that? 1975 i keep harping right. that you know it's a different time back then but uh i think you know you got to remember too they, they, i got homesick i almost wanted to quit school and come back twice that almost happened uh but i stuck it out you know i have to speak and coming home and talking with tom and you know him telling me to weigh my options on this you know that you know it's not a time to give up and i was never a quitter first of all and I, I think that was that was the thing that the mindset that, you know, I pushed forward with to make sure that I did finish out what I started and uh, getting back to, you know, like you say, being a small town, because basically it, it was a matter of just, you know, eating, studying, practicing, playing ball. That's that's pretty much it. But I think that the, the, the easiest part of the transition, like you mentioned, was the community, how well accepted I was. You know, once I got on the basketball court and everyone saw, you know, me being the star player itself, it was amazing how, you know, the the community, the faculty, as well as the student body, you know, uh, was all for me and 100 percent behind me. And I think that kind of helped me itself. You know, I know being from New York, like you say, you know, being able to go out and and sometimes you, you, you need that as a young man. So, you know, you know, put those blinders on so no, there's no distractions for you. You know, you, you know, you got one goal in mind, you know, set yourself right for that goal and go for it, you know, but uh, it, it, it wound up being okay. Believe it or not, it wasn't that bad. It wasn't that bad after the first or two years. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you know, it's just, uh, it's just one of those thoughts that I just never think about. Cause you know, I, I, you know, as you know, you know, once we had moved from New York and we had moved down here, you know, even for me, you know, I had a little bit of a reluctance of accepting mm-hmm. um, life down here in Richmond. And, you know, I mean, granted, you know, circumstance, I didn't have a car because, you know, New York, you really don't need a car to travel around. And and, and I had my moments where I'm like, you know, like, no, nah, I'm going to try to move back to New York. I mean, I'm glad I didn't, you know, in the end. But uh, but it's just it's a very relatable feeling, you know. But granted, I know it's different. It was different for me because, you know, technology and Stuff like that back then they didn't have all the you know cell phones and all that. But, mess but I think now. the the other thing that helped me along the way was uh, I had helped recruit uh, players from from New York City to come up there and play, and that that I roamed with. And uh, uh, about three months after I got up there, 
uh, there was a guy by the name of Dennis Williams who played the Power Memorial that came up. But unfortunately uh, for himself, he got real homesick. And after three months of being up there in school, he wound up quitting school and going back home. So, you know, that, 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 that was one of the reasons, like I said, I kind of got homesick once he left because I was like, well, you know, he left, you know, he came up and he quit and left me. <laughs> so, you know, where do I go from here? Right. But the following year in 1976, uh, Tom had uh, told me about a gentleman uh, by the name of Chris Salitri, who was playing at Chris was playing St. Francis Prep at the time. As a matter of fact, I think no, I think it was St. Francis Prep. Yeah, he was at St. Francis Prep. So I had helped uh, recruit him with Steve and Tom, and he came up and played and was my roommate. So each year when I came back home, there was always another player that we would help recruit because you you allowed two Americans. Like you play overseas at that time, you only allowed two Americans. So right. every year that I came up. You know, there was always someone on campus who was from New York that I could relate to. You know what I'm saying? I, right, I, I right. had a New Yorker there with me. And also, there were a couple of guys who played on St. Mary's and Acadia, some of the teams we played against, who were also from New York that I kind of befriended. So that there kind of made it a little easier seeing other guys from, from, from where I was born and raised. Now, while you was playing, do you remember what, you know, do you remember your any of your averages? Any of the seasons that you had uh, played at St. FX by any chance? Well, my first year probably w- was my best year as far as points go because I was the primary source on the court. You know, I mean, I was, I was, I did it all. I had to do it all, pretty much. Right. Uh, I had, uh, I was a freshman All Canadian, and I almost led the league in, in scoring. I averaged twenty two point three a game, and on the last game of the season, I had missed one game. If I hadn't missed that one game, I probably would have been the scoring champ. But I missed one game, and on this, the last game of the season, we played against Acadia University against a brother by the name of Alvin Jesse, who was from Yonkers, New York. But he was a junior, 6'6 forward, mm-hmm. nice shooter. And um, he wound up scoring 29 that night, and I only wound up scoring 17. So he moved in front of me by uh, three percentage points to, to win the scoring title on the last day of the season. Now – I think it's, and I think I, we may have had discussed this a while back ago. Um, and and I remember um, a few weeks ago we was listening to um, the podcast I think uh, Katie had, and he Draymond was on there, and he was talking about um, you know just how you know within the playing of the game how he relished being the away team and 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 shutting the crowd down. Like was that. Is that like a universal feeling that you oh, could without agree a with? doubt, without a doubt, you know that that was one of the greatest feelings. That was matter of fact, that was one of the, the you know the biggest things uh, when we played up in Canada. And like I said, as you know, I went into to, to my sophomore and junior years, and, and, we, and we got some better players coming in from from around Canada and the U.S. itself. You know, we we were kind of known. Everybody, you know, on the opposing team's fans would always come out to make sure they were there. Well, our pregame warm-up because we gave them a dunking show. Up there, you could dunk the basketball. So mm-hmm. we all we all kind of gave them a show, and everybody used to always come up to want to see hear about this guy from New York named Gil Green. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> but uh, it, 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 it was like a traveling show, man. I mean, they really came out and, and, and was looking forward to seeing us. You know, But like I said, there was nothing more. Like matter of fact, it wasn't about shutting their crowd down. Sometimes the crowd was cheering for us. <laughs> 
<laughs> Ain't that something? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Crowd would cheer for us, you know. And, it's, and you know, because sometimes after the games, you know, normally when you're the opposing team after a game, especially in college, you know, you don't want to be on campus because, you know, you may get some crazy, unruly drunk guys who fans who, who, who don't like you or whatever the case may be. But we were well accepted. You know, sometimes they even invited us to an off off campus party once in a while. Right. You know, I mean, we, like I said, you know, there were some players who were from New York City as well. So, like I said, that's why the transition was a lot easier as well. Now, if now turning the page now until after, you know, St. FX. All right. So now, you know, you graduated from there. And, you know, like what was what was your thought process after that as far as like your next move, whether it been, you know, within basketball or, or, or just life in general? Like what was. Like, like, if you could remember, like, what was your thought process then? Is like, as far as what you was going to do after that? Now, well, it's funny you mentioned that because when I was, you know, my 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 ultimate goal, like any college player, is, is to get to the next level to play in the NBA. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of disappointed I didn't get an opportunity or someone to look at me. And I always had that kind of discussion with Steve and Tom. And uh, you know, uh, un- unfortunately, at that time, uh, I came back home and. Uh, and uh, started working on Wall Street, and uh, also at that time had uh, had a young child back home. Mm-hmm. So that you know, you know, my father raised me, like I said, as far as doing the right thing. So that's what I came back, and uh, I had had an offer to go play in the CBA for the Calgary Alberta Dusters. But I told him the only way I was going to play is if I was able to bring the young lady and and, and the baby. Mm-hmm. up with me but they decided that they wouldn't be able to do that because they didn't have enough funds for wow. their t- from the team to support me as well as them so I decided to come back home okay. figuring I'd get a chance maybe to go back up there and play I came and worked on Wall Street you know took care took care of my child back at home as well at the same time so it kind of worked out you know I thought I would be seen at West Forth like some other players you know, and I was always in contact with Tom. He was trying to, you know, get people to see me, but it just never panned out that way. You know now what I'm you, saying? Now, you mentioned West Fork. Describe to people listening as far as, like, how is the culture and the climate of, of street ball or, you know, playing at, playing at West Fork Street and all those other, you know, now well-known, you know, famous courts in, during the 80s, uh, especially within that time period where you didn't have, so much restrictions on like if you had guys playing in the league, like they were able to, you know, still play it in the summer, you know, at, at the courts and stuff like that. These pickup games, like what, like describe to like how it is as compared to, cause I know now what everything is with all these AAU and all these super teams and stuff like that. But like in New York at the, in the eighties, like what was it at that time that you can remember that, that made everything so great in your mind as far as playing at that time? Well, the competitiveness first and foremost, but like you, like I was saying prior to that, you know, you had guys who were still playing overseas. You know, you had guys from some guys from the NBA that was still was still coming down and playing in it because you got to remember the Rucker was the tournament back in the '60s and early '70s. So in 1977, when Kenny Graham started that, you know, he it was a baby tournament. You know, everybody kind of you know had to adjust because of the size of the court as well. It wasn't a full-size court like at the Rucker, but it was no other summer pro league. So I think that kind of advanced West 4th Street real quickly. So by the, you know, say 80, 81, 82, at that time, it was pretty much on par with the Rucker as far as the players because you had teams 
uh, like Brooklyn, USA, Harlem, USA, who had a team at West 4th Street. And they also had that same team that would play uptown at the Rucker. So, you know, it kind of became incorporated, those two leagues itself, as far as the coaches, as Mm -hmm. far as the players itself. And it was the best nucleus of players from all over the city. And not just in, in, in New York. There were teams that used to come from Philly to play. There was a team that came from Jersey to play. Teams came down from Boston, Connecticut. So, you know, you had an influx of everybody coming to play at West 4th Street. And that's what built the, built the tournament up, I think, at that time. Now, was this around a time period, uh, like as far as the type of play, the player that you was, uh, and, I, and I think you kind of touched on it before how, you know, New York players are typically known to be, you know, they, they play to the hole, they drive to the hole, you know, they, you know, they'll take the contact, whatever, because, you know, like <laughs> no blood, no foul, basically. Um, exactly. Yeah. You know, which is, which today, I mean, it's still uh, the rule of, of the land today playing street ball, but um, how did you get to that Joe, Ham- little Joe Hammond nickname though? And, and, well, and, while, and But when you do that, explain to people who Joe Hammond is in case they don't know. <laughs> Well, if they don't know Joe Hammond, they don't know basketball, first of all. (laughs) (laughs) Joe Hammond was the ultimate uh, playground player at the Rucker. Uh, Joe Hammond, along with Pee Wee Kirkland, Dr. J, Nate the Skate Archibald, not Tiny Archibald, Nate the Skate, that was his name. But uh, they called him the Destroyer because whenever you played against him, he destroyed you. He didn't show no mercy. He didn't care who you were, how tall you were, how short you were. He would throw 50, 60, 70 points on you. And, and two of the, one of the reasons, two of the reasons why uh, I got that nickname was it was out in Queens. There was a guy who played on Andrew Jackson, who I used to battle from St. Albans, Queens, by the name of Rob Holford, who's a coach down in New York City. He used to always throw that name around once he saw me play because we were kind of similar. I had the crazy afro and we, we had similar facial features, you know, light skin mm-hmm. with, with the same nose. You know, and I played that way like Joe Hammond did. I just went to the basket all the time, and it seemed like I was unstoppable at times. You know what I'm saying? So that, that's pretty much how I got the name. You know, and, and believe it or not, you know, it felt it felt good. That made me proud for for him to even think that I was good enough to be called Little Joe Hammond. Now, I, I can't remember if he told me this before, but do you do you, were you did you see that game that when he had? pretty much busted Dr. J on, no, <laughs> on the no, court. Just, you just knew about it no, because yeah, everybody yeah. was talking yeah, about I knew, it. Yeah, I knew the stories. I knew the stories without a doubt. No, I hadn't, I hadn't seen. Like I said, during the 60s is, 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 is basically when it happened in the early 70s. You know, I was just uh, a young teenager playing out in Queens coming into my own. No, I had never heard of it. You know, I heard, like I said, I had a cousin of mine who played, and, you know, he, he used to tell me about those stories with all the guys he played against, you know, at that particular time, Earl Manigault and such, you know what I mean? Cause he was a high jump himself, my cousin, uh, Mike Saunders and such, like I said, but, uh, you know, I, I had never seen those games at the Rucker, you know, I never went up to the Rucker when I lived in Harlem, but I always knew of them. Now, when you was playing <clears throat> at West 4th Street and stuff like that, do you remember occasion or there's one specific game in general where you had the most difficulty like guarding somebody was it that was there like one player that you faced against that you just for whatever reason like you just couldn't guard him you just you just couldn't do it it's funny you mention that not really okay not really no no i mean and there was some great players that played up there you know there were a lot of good players you know uh uh 
go, going back then, you had, you had some guys who had a lot of good guards that could score. Uh, 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 and in particular, a guy who uh, out from Queens, Pete Edwards and Kurt Sumter. And Kurt Sumter uh, and I became real good friends in the summer of 75 because he was a distant cousin to a guy who played on Christ the King with me by the name of Dow Chisley. So, so Kurt Sumter and Phil Foreman, they were Brooklyn guys you know, playing out in Brownsville and places. So whenever there was games to be played out in Brooklyn, they would call us, you know, I remember him calling us to come out with Sam Worthen to play at Brevoid a couple of times, you know, Tillery Park out in Mm -hmm. Brooklyn. And then when we had games out in Queens, we would call them to come play. But I remember them playing in West Forby. They they were a dynamic duo backcourt. They probably was one of the highest scoring backcourts there. I mean, but as far as being unstoppable, no, you know, you get, I could contain them. But there's no way you're going to stop those guys. That's the way it was in the West Fourth Street. They're going to get theirs no matter what. Gotcha. <laughs> That's the way it was back then. You know, <laughs> small guys, big guys, everybody at West Fourth came out to show what they could do, and they did. Now, the, the, and, and to piggyback onto, you know, the, the style of play. Now, I know um, playing in, in, in Canada, and that's international game there, and then you come back home. You're playing in, in, in these in these summer leagues and stuff like that, and, and you're you're playing a typical New York type style game. Like how, like what was the stuff as far as what did you take from playing over internationally that kind of molded you into a better player? As I compared to when you first came into Saint of X, and then when after you leaving, like what was the style? Learning that international style of play, like how how was that? How were you well, able to translate that into playing back in the states? Well, it was a more physical game, you know, and in the States, it was playing in the playgrounds was physical, but the pace of the game was a lot quicker. You got to remember back in the seventies in college, they, they had the, the four corners. The game was a lot slower mm-hmm. as far as, as that go. But in the playgrounds itself, it was a very similar game where it was very physical. You know, it was very fast paced and it was mostly guards that dominated the game itself. You know, so, you know, they talked about your step, you know, we kind of did something, I guess, to the effect that, you know, they called the Eurostep when I was up in Canada, sliding by a guy. You know, I, I wouldn't say it was a Eurostep, but it was, a, it, it was something that, you know, I incorporated when I went down and played in the playgrounds. Now, what do you recall of, because I know you stopped playing after, not too long after I was born, but yeah. um, what do you recall from, if you can remember that those, the last game or the last games that you played, you know, did you feel still like you was playing at your, the highest level or, you know, or was it just that you were just taking it easy more, you know, those days because of, you know, just the regular work stuff. And then me, I I wouldn't say I was playing at my highest level. The last two years of playing, I kind of helped coach, uh, play with the village Mustangs and it was coached by, uh, Les Pines and me and Les Pines became real close, you know, and, uh, at that time, I had played in the backcourt. Matter of fact, myself and the guy that played in the backcourt, we were pretty good. I mean, I played with a lot of guys that that played with us in the backcourt. I mean, uh, Gary McClain played with us at times. I mean, I mean, it's a who's who of guys that played with some big guys. You know, Fred McCray from St. John's, Lenny Horton that played at Georgia Tech. We had some players, you know. So we had a lot of good players on our team. But, uh, you know, it, it was times when, when, when less, you know, Felt, you know, he wanted me to get a little more on the coaching side because it was times where he in the summertime he wasn't going to be there. So, you know, there were a couple of games where I helped coach and, and played as well. But when the games were I coached, I really didn't play at all. 
And at the same time, like I said, you know, I was getting into my 30s. And, and when you're playing against guys who are 19, 20, 21, 10 years younger than you, <laughs> the body takes it. And you got to remember, I was still doing an eight-hour job every day as well. Right. You know what I mean? And coming to play where these guys, that's all they were doing all day and all weekend was yeah. out there playing ball. That's how I used to do it when I was coming up. Now, is there any player in current in the NBA currently right now that you look at and they remind you of yourself when you was playing? Not today. The guy who, you know, I always looked at and, and, and kind of thought it emulated me a little bit. Uh, I probably didn't have a, a, a full long raised jump shot like him was, was KJ, Kevin Johnson for the Phoenix Suns. The way Kevin Johnson used to go to the basket and, and you know, run the offense a little bit. I wasn't, I wasn't a point guard for say, because back then we didn't have point guards. I, I did a little bit of everything. And I thought KJ was a guy like that could do everything. He, he could go to the hole. He could pass. He he could run the offense a little bit, and he, and he dunk on you at any time. So you know it was one of those things where you know I think out of most players I saw over that period of time, Kevin Johnson. But today it's kind of hard to say. It really is. But he was the one player who who kind of you know I thought of of myself like that. His game and. And I know one of the things that we've constantly, you know, debate a lot of times and um, well, now it's really not much of a debate because we, we are pretty much in agreement with, you know, this aspect of it. Um, I know there has been uh, 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 well, recently has been a debate as far as <laughs> who is the best point guard ever in the NBA or who let's let me put it this way. Who are your top five point guards ever in your mind? See, that's t- that's tough because I'm kind of biased to the old school players. You know, that's fine, when, and that's fine. When, like, when talk, <laughs> that's fine. When, when you talk about point guards, but uh, I mean, you know, Nate Archibald comes to mind as one. Obviously, I mean, you know, if you're gonna put him as a point guard, uh, I mean, it's hard to say. It really is, you know, Maurice, because. You know, back then they weren't considered point guards. It wasn't a one mm-hmm. guard, two guard. That's why I say that. Yeah. I mean, but um, you you know, uh, from New York City, I'd have to say Kenny Anderson and Rod Strickland. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody kind of talks about Kenny, Kenny, Kenny the Jet, but Kenny Anderson was good to go as a lefty. Lefty players was always hard to play against. That's why I say him and, and Nate Archibald for two. And, and and Rod Strickland always had that handle. You know, they talk about Kyrie today, but Rod was good to go, you know, for his time period. Uh, I don't know who I could pick as a number four and five as far as guards go, but. Uh, I mean, uh, Isaiah? It's, 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 oh, Isaiah but, Thomas. Yeah. How could I forget Isaiah? Uh, you're Isaiah. Right. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. Isaiah Thomas. And, um, you know, I could I could throw an old school guy in there. You know, a guy people probably wouldn't think of as much. You know, I, everybody talks about a crossover, and one of the first guys I remember seeing doing a crossover was a guy by the name of Archie Clark out of Philadelphia. You know, what I mean, he had that killer crossover to me. I mean, you know, you had Dave Bing, who was another good point guard. If you talk about guys of that size, but uh, like I said, I guess that that would be my five. All right, that that's fair. That's fair. I know because I know at one point you also had um, you also had mentioned uh, and I think we was discussing and trying to debate as far as 
where does Magic Johnson fit <laughs> in this? Because well, I know, because you know, a lot of people, it, it, it's it Magic depends. Is, I guess. Magic is off the charts. You know, when you, you mentioned that, I, I shouldn't have excluded him. It's funny that you say that because Magic transcended transcended that position. So I, I you're 100 percent right. You know, what I mean, I, when I think. I, I, in my mindset, I'm thinking of smaller guards. That's why I mentioned those guys. Right, right, right. Magic, without a doubt, Magic Johnson's number one. Number one, Magic Johnson. You know what I mean? I, I, I set him apart from those guys I mentioned. He's he's one, and they, those are one A and five. <laughs> <laughs> because Magic six nine to do what he did at that time, you know, not not at all. No no one better than Magic, without a doubt. Now I wonder, like. What about like you're watching? You know, you watch the NBA game today, and, and, and obviously, like you've been and watching. I mean, no, no disrespect to my man Clyde Frazier. <laughs> <laughs> of course, of course. <laughs> but um, like I, I, I just I'm I'm wondering also like you've you've been able to see different the many different transition periods of the NBA, you know, in your lifetime. Um, what would you say if your analysis of how the game has changed within, let's say, the last 20, 25 years? Oh, the three-point shot, without a doubt. I mean, you you know, when I played up in Canada, uh, the international, when I left Canada, I should say, is when they really started to, to, to transition three points down here. But it was – was pretty prevalent up on the, on the national scene in Canada. We didn't have the three pointer in college. We we had a twenty four second clock. Actually, we had a thirty second clock. I'm sorry, and we were able to dunk the basketball. So the game was a lot faster. You know, my 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 senior year up there, we were averaging up close to ninety two points a game as a college team. So whenever we came to play down in the states, everybody would slow the game up on us. It would go zone on us. You know what I mean? To slow us down, four corners and such, because we we were scoring. They they heard about us scoring so many points, and they was trying to figure out. As a coach, I'm pretty sure how could a team be scoring 90 points a game when, on average, back in the 70s, you know, scores were 59, 47, 62 right. to 52. You know, those 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 were high scores. That's pretty much what it was. <clears throat> but um, <clears throat> excuse me, the three point shot has definitely changed the game. You know, we had a point in time where the physicality of the game in the 80s, of course, and in the 90s came in. But with the way things is now, you can't touch no one. So, you know, it's all about entertainment and number, wanting high scoring games. And that's what you're getting today. Yeah. And the reason why I ask is because, you know, it's a lot of times people, you know, and especially people of, of my generation, my age, you know, we a lot of people tend to, you know, fetishize uh the 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 way basketball was in the 90s and its physical style and they're like well you know that was when basketball was real basketball and now it's just you know it's you know people are used to it now because it's been this way for a while but you know a lot of people kind of often revert back to how things were in the 90s as if it was you know everything was was so i guess great then And, and i would imagine it's in your mind, was like what was '90s basketball to you? Was that like something that the style of play that you would have enjoyed? You know, you was used to playing, or if it was something that was like if you was in the NBA in the '90s, um, 
would that have been a style of play that you would have enjoyed playing, like as far as adjusting to it? Like, how would you have looked at that? Well, it wouldn't have been a matter of adjusting. That's that. That's the way it was played. You know, it was the physicality. That's why. That's where the the name Power Forward came from, and that actually started in the late seventies. You know, you had guys like Gus Johnson for the Bullets, Lonnie Shelton who played with Seattle. You know, a guy by the name of John Brisker who played back then. And you know, uh, uh, you had Power Forwards. Uh, the ultimate guy, you know, at that time, you know, you had Kermit Washington. Who played for LA as well as uh, uh, guys? I mean, with so many big guys back then, man. That's that's the whole thing, you know. what I mean, it was a different ball game, you know. What I mean, we can even go back, like you say, to, to of course when you know Charles Oakley and, and and Mason and even Charles Barkley coming up, Maurice Lucas with the Portland Trailblazers in the seventies. I mean, it was those those were power forwards, and then now. You don't hear the word power forward used at all because they they call it stretch four. They don't right. even call them a forward. They call them a stretch four, and they put a number on them. So, you know, that, that's one of the things that, that to me, that's, that's really changed as far as, you know, the, the, the game of basketball people playing inside out, where it's now played outside in, you know, that type of game. Yeah, and – and I also and I also try to look at it from and I also wonder for you since you know defense was like your pretty much like your main specialty. I'm like, yeah, you could score, you know, but I know you, you relished being on defense and and shutting down like the main guy on the opposite team. Um, what is something about the way NBA teams or and I guess or just basketball in general, like these guys, how they're playing defense now? Do you feel like they could do? like the structure or how these schemes are with with these guys that they're better defensively now as compared to in the nineties or maybe even when you was playing like, like in your mind, like the defense, like, is it better now or is it worse? Uh, They don't really play defense now because you know, you got so much running around to do It's It's harder that the floor is so spread out. Whereas, whereas before it was a lot easier to play. And you notice they've even gone to the zone now where they didn't play zone before, you know, so that's what's made it so difficult, you know, uh, uh, playing defense today. It's not that they don't. It's just it's a lot harder to play defense now. You know, you got to remember back in the 70s and 80s, even in college, you know, you you would pick up full court. <laughs> you pick up a guy full court from one end to the other, you know what I mean? You would press them. You know, they had uh, a zone press, uh, a 2-1-2 press or or two one two one one, you know you don't see that today. You don't see guys pushing up on people and guarding them three quarters court or picking them up at half court. They should be doing that because of the way they're shooting these three pointers. But you don't see them do that today. So defense is definitely not the way it used to be, without a doubt. You know what I mean? Now, also, so with that being said, let's say for example, I'm a, I'm gonna I'm a place a hypothetical on you and. I may know the answer, but, you know, just for people just to have an idea. Let's say, for example, you're guarding a James Harden, right? How do you, how would you ideally, how would you approach guarding him? Because I know, you know, a lot of these people, they, you know, ESPN or whatever, you know, they hype them as like one of the greatest scorers ever. But, it, but you know, you're saying that they don't play defense, but kind of leads to that, him scoring all these points. Like, how would you be, how would you play him if, if you had full control over that? Well, you know, he's a lefty. 
So uh, you, you got to sway him to his right hand and take away his strength. You know, to me, you know, if, if, if you're going to play James Harden, it, it takes a couple of guys to play him, not just one guy. And what I mean by that is, you, you don't you take away his left, and, and, and wherever you, you know the, the weak side or strong side of the court, that's where you want to want to sway him to, where you can get some help when he does drive to the middle, so he can't get that floater, and maybe have someone right at that foul line, because once he gets past that foul line with the floater, it's two points. You know what I mean? Right. But, but then again, you got to guard the corners. That's why I say the games today is is so different because it's so spread out. It's really difficult. It's hard to guard guys today who can shoot that three-point shot and guys who can penetrate off the three. Understandable. Understandable. Now, in closing, before we end this, I I just want to – and then one more question I want to ask you. Um, Where do you see – do you think the way the NBA or just basketball in general, do you think it's in good hands now? I mean, going going to the future? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean – it's become it's become a younger game, and what I mean by that, with the players, you know, with the one and done, and and coming straight out of high school itself, you know, uh, uh, the skill set is not going to be the same, obviously, because the game of basketball is kind of hard to learn when you when you when you're playing AAU because you don't have the time to, to for practice and, and individual instruction on the game itself. It's just a matter of getting up and down the court and, and running up and down, and then also. Guys today don't relish playing against the guys on their team who are their best players when they go to college. They all want to group up and play together as opposed to being able to play against them. Back in the day, we that's what we wanted to do. We wanted to shut down that guy. We didn't want to play with him. <laughs> we wanted to play against him, you know, to show ourselves how good we are. But uh, that's just the way it is. But like I said, with the three-point shot and, and international players, that's – that's been the biggest change in the NBA, the influx of the international player. Right. I think that's why it's, it's definitely in good hands, without a doubt. Okay. Okay. Well, like I said, with that being said, Dad, um, listen, man, uh, it, it's it's been it's been great to be able to do this with you. Um, I, I'm I'm hoping that it. I'm pretty sure it probably won't be the last time I'll no you know, get your all. get your uh you know view <laughs> on especially on basketball now these days and um because i mean like i said i know basketball is your life and you know even and i'm telling everybody that's listening to this listen watching the game with him is like you you don't need a play-by-play guy just listen to him <laughs> listen to him and, and him and he'll pause it and break down these different stuff uh, it's like if you're watching like it's like it's a coach all right <laughs> and but the, the but i will say this though like by by you doing that you know, it has allowed me to look at the game and, you know, and, and just in a different way, like I, I, how I approach how to, how, how the players, you know, different schematics and, and what to look for. Like, oh my God, it's like, all right, I could point that out. Like, all right, that's a zone, you know, oh, okay. They doing a full court press or trap or, you know, stuff like that. And it, it's, it's one of those things that I'm like, Hey man, I'm just getting free game over here. Like, like I know, I know coaching isn't necessarily your, your your thing, and even though I personally feel like you probably would have been a good coach, like assistant coach or something like that, um, but I but I know it's it's it could probably it's probably one of those things that is different when you're playing the game and when you're watching the game at home. Oh yeah, then when sure, you're actually sure. coaching, it's a lot to- easier sitting at home critiquing it without a doubt, <laughs> without a doubt it is. But before we leave, I just want to wish uh, all the fathers out there happy Father's Day because. 
And, and when you first started this, it, the, the reason you did start it was due to the fact that, like you said, that going back to the ESPN uh, uh, interview with Mike Lupica, uh, hopefully if he's listening, I want to wish him and his father a happy Father's Day, as, as well as Coach uh, Steve Kinchowski up in Canada and any other fathers that, that, that may be listening that, that know me, who, who I've been associated with over the last 50 years. Uh, hopefully you enjoy your day. Uh, if I didn't hit you up with a text, I'm letting you know in person right now. All right. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, we're going to, th- this podcast will be, um, uh, I'll do my best to try to post it tonight and, um, you know, and I'll, I'll let you know about it. But man, I, again, dad, I really seriously thank you for doing this. And, um, I know you're missing a little bit of the game right now with the Western Conference finals game, but, um, but it, this has been great. Um, you've been a very influential person to me, man. And, and just I, 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 I beam with nothing but but just happiness whenever talking about you, thinking about you and and everybody. They, they could feel that energy and they could feel that when I talked talk to them about you, man. So um, you, you, you got you got a lot of fans out there. I'm just letting you know. I appreciate it, man. I love you, son. You know that always. <laughs> yes, yes. Love you too, Dad. So uh, with that being said, thank you, everybody, for listening. Appreciate the, always the support uh, for, for the podcast. Um, the next one we do, um, uh, Chris will be on the next one. But like I said, I wanted to do this special one just, just for Father's Day uh, and, and to have this brilliant mind on here. And so until next time, everybody, y'all have a good rest of the day and uh, catch you on the flip side.